Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Noah, joined today by Ryan. Hi. And Chris. Hey, what's up? And we're recording today on February 9th. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a baseball fan, you might know that pitchers and catchers are supposed to report to spring training this coming week, uh, February 12th through about February 16th, with the full squads coming out a few days later than that. Except that this year there's a sizable number of those pitchers and catchers and of those full squads that will not be reporting because as of today, 127 players in Major League Baseball remain unsigned free agents. For those of you who are somewhat mathematically minded, that's enough for the rosters of five teams, which is a sixth of Major League Baseball. Among these free agents, you've got Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, two very, very good young players, 10 all-star appearances between the two of them. Um, there's an... On pace for Hall of Fame careers. MVP, Bryce Harper, right? And, twi- and double gold glove, Manny Machado. And they've had, I think, two offers between the two of them. Well, Is that correct? Well, we don't, we don't know because... The ones that got out there, I remember there was the when we really started to see their offers go down, like the big rumor, and it's it was very specific, and it wouldn't get out there if it wasn't true, I don't think. But towards the end of last season, the Nationals tried to re-sign him for ten years, three hundred million, which now is looking like a, a deal of the past that you don't even see anymore because now the offers were looking like seven years, one seventy-five. You were seeing for Machado. On in fact, on the Harper front, it's been like completely quiet you haven't even heard rumors about recent deals besides some teams he's been talking and to. he is literally the cover boy for you know the, the mlb guy. video game coming yeah. up in a month and they don't know what jersey he'll be wearing <laughs> on that cover the point you're getting at is that mlb is in this situation where the teams have collectively said we're not signing contracts anymore the long-term deals that you know the big stars of even just the past few years have gotten, we're not doing that anymore. And that has had, you know, negative impact all the way down through the salary structure, not just for the all-star Bryce Harper types, but for regular pitchers and catchers and for players who aren't going to expect anywhere close to the deal Bryce Harper would expect. Right, like uh, Patrick Corbin, I know, kind of signed. He was one of the first big free agents uh, to sign. Really, one, turns out one of the only ones. At the age of 31, getting a five-year deal, I, I don't know the exact number, but it's probably somewhere at least $20 million a year. Um, you thought that that was, was going to be normal this offseason, even though last year was kind of more of the same. But after that, like you're not seeing, but you're not seeing any of these like big spending contracts. And the justification you keep hearing a lot of it publicly is the luxury tax, which it, my perception has been that the owners are trying to treat the luxury tax as if it's some kind of not only a soft cap, but like a hard, like in the in Hal Steinbrenner's case, many times verbally treating it like it's a hard cap. So Patrick Corbin is the only free agent this offseason to have signed for more than $68 million, right. if I remember. Mm-hmm. Could have signed for and, $1 million and more. And that's but like a middle-of-the-road contract by the standards of Major League Baseball, or at least it used to be. Right. Um, it wasn't that long ago that the record for the biggest contract um, was Giancarlo Stanton getting 13 years, $325 million from possibly the stupidest team owner in America. <laughs> and the um, cheapest, too. That's the thing. was like yeah. viewed as like a guy who any, anytime anyone was about to make a lot of money, they ship them out. Mm-hmm. They do something to kind of strip down mm-hmm. the team. And not only is he, you know, not paying Giancarlo Stanton anymore, he sold the team like two yeah. years after that. To that makes sense. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago that big contracts were still a possibility or maybe even the norm. But what you've got right now is just this extremely cold offseason where, as you guys have already mentioned, maybe one or two big names moved, but that's it. 
And so as of right now, you still got enough for a six of the league's teams to to field a full roster in guys who don't know where their next paycheck will be coming from or even if it is coming. Mm-hmm. And what you talked about, Chris, the there's a Mark Normandon article for, I think it's SB Nation. Nope, it's Deadspin, um, where he talks about how the luxury tax has become uh, a salary cap mm-hmm. because of the historical failures between teams and owners. And I'd like to just say that we actually made that point several episodes ago when Ryan, Amanda, and I discussed the labor history of MOB, that that's what a luxury tax is. It effectively <laughs> becomes a salary cap, especially if you structure it the way that MOB does. Mm-hmm. It, can you just go into a little bit of detail for people who might not be up on baseball? What is a luxury tax? You know, What, what do you mean there's people who aren't up on baseball? <laughs> <laughs> I know they're not, they're not Americans. Right? Not in 2019, Americans. but yeah. Unbelievable. Anyway, so the luxury tax, or I think the formal term is the competitive balance tax, is basically it was born out of a compromise in 97 between players and owners. Owners wanted a hard salary cap. Players, understandably, didn't want anything that would depress their salaries, but were willing to push for kind of parity and predictability so that no matter where a player got signed, whether it was a small market or a big market team, it wouldn't matter as much to their paycheck. And they came up with this competitive balance tax idea, which was supposed to be that if any team uh, speeds past a certain mm-hmm. amount in salary, which was originally said somewhere in the mid-hundreds millions, then went to about $180 million in the 2000s, and in 2016 was set at um, $206 million with each year in index to some rate of increase which is right where the two top spenders were which are the giants and red sox i think are two top two or top three and they both were at the time at the time yeah Yeah. because last year i think it was the nationals and dodgers i think were the only two to the red sox might have also i I think they had one of the higher payrolls they had the highest payroll so they must have and you know won the world series not that that's coincidental or anything Stop smiling, Ryan. <laughs> anyway. Um, Ignore him. So any team that sped past this just had to pay a certain higher percentage of revenues on the amount of money that they had spent beyond that limit, which I'm emphasizing because apparently a lot of people don't understand how a marginal tax rate works, and, and that's what's going on Common here. theme in you know, Recent, American news. Yeah. And they also, I think, dropped 10 slots in the draft. And what the Red Sox did, I believe, this year is basically just went, we can do that, mm-hmm. and you know, paid the penalty and paid the, the draft drop. But the problem is that over time, owners and, and front offices decided to just treat that as a hard salary cap, as Chris was saying. And, and we would see instances of teams you know, very clearly making moves specifically to get under that threshold because it you know, resets you because the penalty is higher if you're over for multiple years in a row. But then those teams that specifically reset their threshold so they, they could spend big, the next year has come along and they aren't spending big. Yeah, we're... Most specifically, the Dodgers, who made a bunch of moves that were clearly salary dumps, looked like they were a good candidate to sign uh, Harper and maybe even keep Machado, and they are doing neither. So they they're pretty clearly uh, joining in to this 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 league of teams. And the frustrating thing with the luxury tax is that the effects of it—it's not like this actual real salary cap where, as a, from a fan's point of view, uh, you. It, it affects you when you overspend it, right? Because then your team can't get the players that they need to win. Whereas in baseball, there's actually still nothing stopping them right. from keeping just breaking the luxury tax over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's all just feasibility. Owners willing the owners, to spend the money. Right. It literally only affects the owners of the team. And the owners have the money. Yeah. Like there's e- even the small market owners, you know, they have the money to spend more on their players than they are currently. Right. So that's why I think it gets to something that as a Yankee fan always frustrated me was I feel like uh, competitive balance and the reason why they called it that is to reinforce it and it's it's a myth. <laughs> the fact is when you have a league and you have a sport of the last you know 30 something years where the owners are pretty much all billionaires to one degree or another, small markets are not a factor. Everybody has as much money to spend as you could possibly have even if even without a salary cap. Um, there hasn't been an MLB payroll uh, even before this started happening that's been 
uh, higher than like 210, 220 million, maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe at some times of a season it's been that high. Well, there was something last year where like the average, you know, player salary last year went down for mm-hmm. the first time in decades. Or With like, revenues breaking records, right? Even mm-hmm. though attendance right. is well documented you know, that it's it been dipping. It went down in just absolute terms, not even relative to. Right. Revenue. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's something that doesn't match up. And then you look at the other sports that have salary caps. Um, there's far less parity in those sports than there is in baseball. Some of that's due to the nature of the sport. Like basketball is a lot less chaotic. So you're going to get a lot more dynasties. Um, and baseball is pitchers and all these little bunts and things that go wrong. Um, but still, like you don't see, you know, like freaky bounces, like yeah. things like that that don't factor. I in. just, I just like listing bunts. Yeah, and things bunts. that are bad. I hate bunts, so I list them as things that are like this awful aberration. And I want them to go away forever. Um, okay. and, and you just see that it doesn't bear fruit. Like it's, right. it's a sport where uh, you feel like so many different teams have a chance every year and they're all different. I, I just want to read this. It's from a David Roth article in Deadspin about a month ago. Quote, since Alex Rodriguez signed his then record 10 year, $252 million contract with the Rangers back in 2001, MLB's revenues have more than doubled, even when adjusted for inflation. Team payrolls, after a similar adjustment, have gone up by less than 40%. Teams, even big spending teams like the Yankees, are spending significantly smaller percentages of their larger revenues than they have in the past. It points out that the Yankees have spent something like 30% of their revenue on player payroll, which is a lower percentage than the Rays, and it's compared to 85% in 2004. So it's a massive drop in, you know... See, and in the Yankees' case, you know, about five or six years ago, they signed what seemed like it was going to be one of their last dumb contracts, right? <laughs> like with the Jacoby Ellsbury contract. So there's like a slight part of me that sees some of these new spending habits as a good thing because, like, you see something like Patrick Corbin, right? He was a guy who's from the New York area, I think from New Jersey, Long Island, Connecticut, something, one of those places. And everyone was saying, oh, they need arms. Patrick Corbin's out there. He's a lefty, relatively young. He's 31, and he's just going to go to the Yankees. And that's not what happens. Uh, He gets a five-year rich contract, and apparently the Yankees uh, didn't want to spend that kind of money on him. So there's a part of me that's like, okay, we're we're avoiding the Jacoby Ellsbury contracts with these new spending Mm -hmm. habits. So – it's sometimes for, it's hard to talk about it with some fans who think that, like, oh, well, my team's just being smart. Machado and Harper are still out there, so it's not like they lost yet. Well, this has been the justification from baseball as a whole is mm-hmm. that teams have caught on to the trend that when you give you know free agents these big contracts, they tend yeah. not to pan out. You they know? caught on to the Scott Boris kind of mm-hmm. That has machine. been the justification that they've laid out. You know, it's they haven't, you know, tried to cry poor the way a lot of league ownership will, you know, in labor struggles. They've said, we're smart. We're going to be smart about this. And like you said, a lot of fans have bought into that. You right. know, they, well, they've been primed okay, for but it. Mm-hmm. That is effectively crying poor because they do have the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They could sign the dumb contracts and still – Sign more dumb contracts. (laughs) They could sign more dumb contracts. It was better with those deals happening, but sometimes it did hurt you as a fan. Like it's, you know. I I mean, sure, but see, that's the thing. Like I've gone through that experience because I'm an Astros fan, and I'm somehow only the third most objectionable person in the room. Um, But you've got all of these. I just got that. (laughs) I'm used to it. I just you know. (laughs) Yeah. No. It's it's your it's your fair fate. But anyway, so. I I certainly had the occasional player where I'm like, why is this person still on the payroll? Every time I hear that, you know, he's coming to the mound or whatever, I'm suddenly much less likely to enjoy the game of baseball that I am watching. (laughs) But I think the problem is that it would be one thing if they were signing big and giving the players what and paying the players what they're worth and somehow it just, you know, occasionally doesn't pan out, but they are generally like the good teams are still good and are still making the playoffs and the bad and the bad teams are generally speaking, you know, maybe they make a lucky run one, one or two years, but (laughs) yeah. All right. It turned out to be, (laughs) well, that's the thing too. That's, that's, they didn't spend, they weren't, they didn't get there through spending. Right. Right. But on the other hand, you have this that's the other problem that if this tax was supposed to ensure competitive balance, it really didn't because um, I think something like eight teams lost over 95 games last year, mm-hmm. which is 
you're almost seeing almost two thirds of a season. You saw last off season was really the start of this, and we talked about this on the show a year ago. We talked about how you know players weren't getting signed to the sort of contracts they expected, um, and you, you had a real it really looked like a lot of teams weren't trying to be competitive and the economics of baseball with revenue sharing and all of that, there's, you know, some teams have figured out that they can make more money by not fielding a good team than by spending lavishly on payroll and having, you know, actual success on the field, which is terrible for fans. And which is something that actually the former MLB commissioner Uberoth told owners apparently all the way back in 85 he explicitly told them you would get more money not spending fielding a losing team and but just there's sitting so on that much pile you know, of money. revenue built in you know exactly tv contracts through the revenue sharing from the rich teams to the bottom ones that winning a few extra games won't increase your income by that same percentage and and so that's the math a lot of teams are relying on to say that no there's nothing fishy about this you know we're being smart mm-hmm. and you, you talk about being an astros fan there was that sports illustrated cover you know, famously a few years be- before they won the world series saying these are going to be the 2017 Dean. world series yep. champs oh, yeah. and they were and i i think a lot of teams have sort of tried to look at that model which has been you know build on young cheap talent they started baseball tanking like tanking yeah. has been a thing uh, for at least a decade now as far as being a mainstream acknowledged thing. But I think the Astros were the first team to do it in baseball, which can be a little hard because there's so many different systems involved. And, and there's so many games in right. baseball. You know, you're and, expecting people to show up every day all summer. Right. Mm-hmm. And and you can and speaking of the systems that are involved, you could say that the minor league system is in itself a part of this uh, like kind of suppression mechanic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're seeing it. Uh, Kyler Murray, who won the Heisman in college football, signed. He was already drafted by the A's, I think, last year. Signed mm-hmm. a deal that guarantees him over five million dollars. But the thing in baseball is, uh, you have to grind through this system for a few years. He's only 19, he's 20 years old, just cracking 20 years old. Players aren't allowed to get big contracts right out of the draft. Right. So it's not just the money that he'd get as a rookie in the NFL would be more, which they capped their rookie contracts about eight or nine years ago. But it's the fact that he's not going to get exposure. He has to go to a bunch of, uh, you know, play in a bunch of mid- medium to small size cities. He has to come to Rochester, you know, here. <laughs> Who wants to do that, right? Like, he has to do all these things that, like, guys who have a big-time future, um, they don't want to have to do that. And, so now it's hurting, rare, it's hurting the game. you know, baseball player who has the leverage of he can play this other sport right. really well, and he can go pro in that. So, like, the, the, in a way, the sport is getting too comfortable with this idea that no one guy can just go and just become a huge superstar right away. Mm-hmm. And it's hurting them when you have other sports that people can do uh, where they can just shoot right up, and that goes right to the problems of uh, the lack of uh, talent in the U.S. being diversified uh, through the MLB pipelines over the last mm-hmm. 20 years, all these things where they're relying more on um, like kind of suburban talent. The sport is getting too white, they're saying, and there are all these other things, at least from d- the domestic player base, mm-hmm. and that is part of what fuels it. So you're seeing all these things that are hurting the game, and until the revenues reflect that, um, it's hard to see – when when or how that will change at least until the new cba expires or starts. right and that's that's ultimately what the threat is here that in 2021 the cba expires and yeah. we're headed for either a lockout or hopefully a strike because as we said before on this episode on on the show lockouts are bad <laughs> that that's when the owners say you're not coming to work yeah. and we don't want that and that's what happens more often yeah. Right. Oh, yes. Sports like hockey's had. I don't think hockey had one, any of those were player strikes, as far as I know. Not since like the eighties. Yeah, the big one that canceled the season. Basketball. Uh, I think both of those were uh, owner lockouts. lockouts that shortened the mm-hmm. season over the last twenty years. The uh, NFL and MLB are more mixed bags, and I think it's partly because they the NFL has a limited antitrust exemption, and MLB has a full antitrust mm-hmm. exemption because it's not a sport; it's an amusement. Mm-hmm. Um, which means that in some ways the labor situation around both of those sports is strange. It it doesn't work the same way. And for decades, uh, the executive directors and lawyers and people like that, for the players' associations in those sports, were able to use that to the players' advantage. But more and more, as has happened to the rest of American society, team owners have been able – to turn that back on the players the same way that they turned the luxury tax back on the players. 
they, they've been able to use it against them by, you know, hiring better lawyers, by owning their own league branded networks, by having journalists who are on the league payroll yeah. and are Working unlikely for the to push against network, them. right? <laughs> yeah, or MLB.com or yeah. whatever. Um, Every league has a channel now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, it's, and, and that's the thing, especially plus, as you mentioned, baseball has this extremely robust minor league system. And so when Kyler Murray chooses Too to robust, play, I think. Yes. Yeah. When when Kyler Murray chooses to play football, one of the reasons he's doing that is, as we mentioned, you know, he's not going to get as much money as a rookie. And as we also mentioned, he's staring down the barrel of he's got three years before he basically can actually argue his salary. Mm-hmm. That's arbitration. Yeah. He's got three more years before he would have to – he would be able to go on the free agent and they've market. Been, they've been keeping guys like him in the minors longer over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Like to manipulate their service Now you see time. a lot of guys who are coming up like, oh, this is my team's new young star. And you look at his age and it's like, what, 24, 25? Yep. Like when Aaron Judge came up, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, he's already he's already his mid-20s? Like, yeah. You know, you miss that. Like, or um, Vladimir Guerrero and, Jr. right now is lighting the minor leagues on fire. And they won't call him. And up. they won't. They'll call him they up for like twenty games. Yeah, they'll, and, they'll call or up this forty year. or whatever. And but. the concern, but from the teams is that once you do that, you after six years you have to become a free agent. And mm-hmm. when you become a free agent, you're supposed to get a big payday, which as we're seeing now, but mm, that's not you know, happening. For for years, they've sort of justified this sort of. Uh, controlled costs for low, younger players by saying, okay, you put your time in, you're going to get the big payday, but yep. what we're Ride seeing now is that nobody's that. given out that big payday. Right. And to be fair, that's something that the MLBPA was a little bit short-sighted mm-hmm. on all the way back in 85. Yeah. Uh, that's when arbitration time... Th- that was time something the players' union, you know, split agreed on. to. They, they yeah. agreed yeah. to have this structure. You know? But they agreed on it because the players and leadership were veterans, yeah. and the young players were split... Uh, obviously weren't going to favor <laughs> that. against each other. So the like, union was split, which is why the, the 1985 MLB strike was a two-day strike. And the antitrust exemption has only been, like, continually reinforced. And there was a decision in 73. Um, you know, before we started recording, I was actually talking about a 2016 lawsuit in the federal courts by the scouts. And the scouts... They sued the MLB because they were experiencing what a lot of typical American workers are experiencing, which is where they were experiencing these slow, kind of steady, short staffing. Um, They were starting to have to work too many overtime hours and all these other things that made them feel like they were getting squeezed. And a federal uh, lower circuit court kind of ruled that they were they that the exemption stands and that it's just been reinforced over and over again for the last 45 years now. So it's hard to see if anything is ever going to change on the legal front. We've thrown out a lot of numbers in the past segment. Um, We'll let you process for a bit of a break, and we'll be back with more numbers. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Chris. Hey, what's up? We've been talking about baseball free agency and why it seems like owners are screwing over the players, basically, by reducing the amount they are paying out to them. Baseball has had record revenues, as we've talked about, and a smaller chunk of that pie is going to the players everybody pays to see. Why is that? Why do we think that's happening in baseball specifically? Because we haven't seen a similar pattern in the other major sports in the U.S. Well, the other major sports have a built-in cost control, right? Like the salary – we talked about how the luxury tax is basically becoming a salary cap in the owners' Mm -hmm. minds both – I'm sure internally and also uh, publicly as well. And when the way they kind of justify signing or not signing guys, unloading guys, trading guys, constantly referring to luxury tax. And these other leagues have a built-in thing where you just, the owners know ahead of time uh, what the cap is. It goes up a slight amount relative to whatever amount of revenue every year. Mm -hmm. Whereas baseball has never had that. And part of the reason... Um, was because the players' union was so strong, and it's mm-hmm. not looking as united anymore now, which is why I think you're starting to see this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a way of bullying the players because the CBA expires after the 2021 season. Um, yeah. And I think it's a way to kind of flex on them and to show that they 
they have the power and that they can control where the money goes when they need to. So I, I kind of see it as like this opening round of what should be the worst baseball labor fight in like 25, 30 years. Well, so in your, so what you're saying, and I don't think you're wrong, is that the owners are punishing players for having had the audacity to suggest something other than a hard salary cap all the way back in 97. Yeah. Because that that wouldn't be the first time the owners did that. Right. Like it's something that it's the sport It kind of set the standard for big sports contracts. Uh, You can go all the way back to 70, like Reggie Jackson going to the Yankees uh, in the 70s was one of the big, like big money moves One of the first big money moves of the time, right, as far as free agency goes. And it kind of created our modern construct of sports, of players having free agency, of every offseason you have, oh, here's your big crop of free agents this year. Like, these things all started during that time. And baseball had been setting the trends for big sports contract ever since, to where even in the NBA, you're not seeing the kind of deals you got in baseball until the last few years when their salary cap started expanding rapidly. Well, and and baseball also sets the stage for the other sports in even subtler ways because, well, it was the first major sport league. It was was the first one to take on all of these labor issues. And a lot of what the NBA, the NFL, and the NHL have done over the past few decades is basically attempt to copy baseball's labor practices. And where they haven't been successful, it's because they run into judges who, you know, are correct – who point out that baseball and the NFL have, the NFL somewhat, have exemptions from the kind of laws that make it easier to exploit your labor. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise we would view Major League Baseball as sort of like a cartel, if not for their antitrust exemption, you know, legally speaking. You know, we can say that, yeah, it's a cartel where the owners come together to agree upon, you know, what players should get, but... It's it's a lost cause in every sport, but I think that's why it, it, people don't really think about it. Probably that's why you don't see like alternate baseball leagues happen mm-hmm. uh, the way you have in football over the years. As recently as the '80s, there was the USFL, which could have maybe mounted a the good, XFL. The XFL. I the mean, AAF I, is playing right now. Yeah, the exactly. You always have these alternatives that are able to happen. The XFL. I really wish uh, won that struggle. Um, but they didn't. I was their last fan left. I was their last fan left probably at the time. Million dollar game meant a lot to me. But yeah, you don't see it because these exemptions, and as I said earlier, these exemption this exemption for baseball has been reinforced over and over again by the courts. The scouts a couple of years ago even tried to fight back against the league because they're having to work a lot of overtime and there's nothing they can do about it. And it's really just tough to see how there's that kind of workaround without the players really exerting themselves and having the kind of leadership that they had uh, back in the 80s and throughout the steroid era. I, I think one of the things you're, you're seeing, at least you know, in the public argument sort of part of this, is that baseball teams have done a good job of selling the process to fans. Mm-hmm. You know, famously, the 76ers and the NBA you know, were openly tanking. Tanking's a thing now, and it wasn't 10 years ago, at least. Yeah. And commonly. Sam Hinkie, their GM, you know, talked, his phrase was trust the process. Mm-hmm. And, and that has come to baseball. It has come through the Astros and their rebuilding process. You know, they've been able to sell fans on this idea of, okay, we know it's not good now, but give us three years and who knows what will happen. And some of those teams are not going to get there because not every GM is as smart as they think they are, but yeah. they all th- view themselves as, you know, this genius capable of building things from the ground up. What changed was not just that this happening, right? Like teams have always gone through rebuild processes. Um, none of that's new, but the messaging around it changed. Like the fact that it's been so widely acknowledged now and like mm-hmm. self-aware, kind of like like the rest of like culture, right? Is becoming, so, is mm-hmm. like so self-aware, is kind of postmodern. Like, like It used to be that teams like the Yankees, they couldn't take an off year. You no. Know, the Yankees would never have a rebuild, mm-hmm. but they've had a couple rebuilds in this decade, yeah. and they've managed to become a very good team at the moment. But. And they mildly acknowledge it even then. And it's funny you mentioned that specifically because one of the villains that gets invented in, in all of this is Moneyball, basically, mm-hmm. or Stadheadism. In general, yeah. you know, baseball is famously a stat head sport. There's tons of fans who, who know what, all the numbers now. <clears throat> yes. And arguably, for for 
people, even people who are connected to, uh, who were connected to the MLBPA, that's what's to blame. It, it's people deciding that they're going to crunch numbers to figure out why this player with last year having, I don't know, 1.7 wins above replacement is a good bet at this amount of money, but this player who is a, just a smidge below shouldn't even be seriously considered for an offer. Fans have gone from, you know, the line about rooting for laundry, you know, where they just want their team to be good at whatever cost to they now see themselves as the GM and they're almost rooting for the corporate management strategy. I think that is true, I think, to an extent. Mm -hmm. But I think the real problem is that the messaging around statheadism is basically that it's good as long as it saves the team money. Mm -hmm. As long as, you know, you're doing the... Oakland A's managing to make an incredible run with a relatively low payroll or the idea used to be that it was okay to try and do that as long as your team was relatively successful utilizing that approach. But as you guys are saying, now teams are are open. Every team is trying to use yes. that approach and, and they're, they're not going to be successful. Like the money ball aspect and <clears throat> the small town market myth are two of the things I think that have like primed the messaging around this and why all of a sudden you started to see tanking become such a self-aware mm-hmm. thing um, in all sports, not even just baseball. I think baseball is actually late to catch on to being self-aware about tanking. I mean, trust the process was also Bill's catchphrase this year. So. Right, exactly. It's spread to everywhere. And even, for, even football, which is like so few games, you, it's so much less acceptable to tank. Tanking is the difference. is like yeah. a one-game difference. Yeah, tanking can mean like the whole month of September, you're just blow because you're starting a bunch of rookies, right? Yeah. And I think these kind of... These, these things primed the fans to at least not outright rebel against it. You see people who maybe someone like me who is upset the Yankees are not signing Machado and or Harper um, can still see uh, a silver lining in the restraint they showed with Patrick Corbin, which doesn't make sense because there is no cap. Like, logically, it doesn't make sense for me to feel that the way. The money's right? not coming out of your paycheck. Right, and there's no cap that's going to prevent where a Corbin would – uh, prevent them from signing Machado theoretically. Like that number I cited earlier, you know, they're spending like thirty percent of their revenue. Yeah. On players. So the money. So what you're saying is the money's there. Yes. Uh, the the headline of that piece was every MLB owner can afford every player. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely true. And so the problem we're really what what we're really haggling over is basically owners' lack of willingness to to actually pay people, which. You know, generally speaking, these days, if you're a team owner, that's not your main asset. It it is a revenue generator for you, but you usually aren't deriving the majority of your wealth from that. Notable exceptions are like Mark Davis of the Raiders or something like that. But for the most part, that's the case. And I see, like, I say the the money. I didn't actually follow through on this, but the Moneyball um, and sabermetrics. Like, I think the reason why I think that primed the messaging around this <clears throat> is because now fans can get on board and say. Like oh I, I crunch these numbers and I think he's this guy's not actually worth twenty million a year. Right. Every fan is a fantasy owner. Right. It, right. Not not this player is actually worth twenty million. Like well in the NBA you're getting contracts now that you're getting a six man who's like Michael Conley right great starting point guard he's not a six man he's an all star every year but he's making a what used to be a franchise player contract right I think Michael Conley at the time signed the biggest NBA contract of all time and he's a guy that. Even some decent NBA fans but can't the point NBA him out. NBA has right? a limit on right. They know what they're going to have to pay. The only difference in the NBA is that their cap has gone up but, a lot more. But, but even for individual players, which is why mm-hmm. LeBron isn't making you know two hundred million dollars right. a year. But it just shows that like if owners feel like they have a set amount of money, then they're still happy giving out these dumb contracts. So don't let like the whole dumb contract sabermetrics thing fool you. I think you might right. know better than me. Does the NBA have a salary floor? Um, I don't know because I've never the heard NFL of any. Does. I heard of now. I'm sure they do, but and I've never heard of anyone does. reaching it. I know, like the Marlins were in danger of hitting it one year. The Rays, <laughs> like all the Florida teams, were are, were like perpetually in danger of like breaking through under the 40 million mark. Florida and, team breaks under salary floor. Yeah, like that's how it goes. <laughs> Loses in baseball. 150 games. It's a small market myth, right? Small. Even the Marlins yeah. were able to get away with that in Miami, like a top 10 market. But where I'm trying to go with this, though, is that. This isn't the first time owners have done this, and we yeah. know this now. In 1985, after that two-day strike that we already talked about, what the owners did in response, they were so incensed that players would even consider you know, uh, pushing for expanded free agency or that they would even consider opposing adding another year of arbitration or anything like that. 
that they rewarded the players, and I'm using 72-point air quotes on rewarded, with three years of open, open collusion where, go figure, no free agents were being signed. Mm -hmm. There was a famous case in there where Andre Dawson, who was a star player at the time. He's a Hall of Famer now. Yeah. Yeah. He... uh, in 1987, he ended up signing a blank contract with the Cubs, and <laughs> they won treated him so MVP bad too. on 500,000 a year, which even at the time was quite low. <laughs> and as you said, with the effect that that has on players who aren't necessarily all stars, mm-hmm. I referenced this the last time I I got to talk about baseball on here. But Lonnie Smith had to accept an incredibly low offer of money. I think it was 800,000 dollars. Uh, and to be fair, his career was actually kind of going down the the pike and so on. But he was at his – this was the lowest point he would hit because nobody would sign him and nobody would try to turn him around. And just I think a year later, he signed for I think the same amount of money or possibly even less and immediately started becoming a comeback player. Mm-hmm. So on even a human level – this not only represents owners deciding to sit on their hands and sit on their massive, massive, massive piles of money, mm-hmm. but it also represents a willingness. And finally, I think, and something that is sort of like a darkly comedic good thing, they're finally being obvious about the fact that to them, these aren't human beings. They're just, you know, revenue streams. And they're finally admitting that by doing this. There was a, a story I read, author had made the case that this doesn't necessarily have to be collusion that's causing all this because if you look at, like we said earlier, you know, the revenue is guaranteed. You know, the average, you know, Bryce Harper is not going to bring back individually that amount of money that you're going to pay him. And so that's the argument that teams are going to use to say, you know, we can do this. This is fine. Also, you don't even know if that's true, right? I mean, you can have a whole generation of fans locally or nationally that become fans because of Bryce Harper. Like, I think anyone who's been a sports fan their whole life can pick a time or a person that kind of made them a fan mm-hmm. of that team, like whether it was a player, an era that was defined by a player or a coach. So, like, it's it's not even an argument that you can actually measurably make outside mm-hmm. of just jersey sales. At, at any rate, it's going to be hard to prove collusion is happening yeah. right. here. And you would think owners are smart enough not to have that smoking gun the way there were in the 80s. But, I mean, but we've seen in broader American society that yeah. rich people love sending around emails that are just like, these are the crimes I want to do. Yeah. <laughs> why not? Yeah, why not have but the a smoking thing is, gun? I don't, there wasn't a smoking gun in the 80s. Mm-hmm. There wasn't one then. There is one now because of what has come out since. Mm-hmm. So there may very well be collusion. Yeah. We yeah. just won't know forever until, I don't know, like the next level in communication technology gets reached. Mm-hmm. You know, in 2030, some random telepath will like overhear we're, the We're going to find of, the Cardinal GM tech messages. And this, yes. And this doesn't like... I think fans should be concerned about this, not just because, like, oh, your team might stop signing great players, uh, but also, you like, the time period we keep referring back to, which the mid-'80s to the mid-'90s, really, where you saw a lot of this labor strife back and forth. Then eventually the lockout playoffs got canceled in 94. And you look at that time contextually in sports, and that's when all of a sudden the NBA, the NFL, started to overtake the MLB. The MLB had what... I, I think should be and largely is considered kind of a dark age as mm-hmm. far as its popularity. Hit an all-time low by the mid-90s, um, and it's concerning. And I'm, I'm, I'm someone who likes pretty much every sport uh, mm-hmm. to a fault, and I, I'm not someone who's like, oh, I want baseball to beat out those other leagues. I like baseball the best. But it's concerning when there's something you love and it's diminishing because of greed and because of all of the resources and the wealth the sport has generated and the popularity is only able to go to a few places. And more specifically, like the money that's not being spent on players, that doesn't mean ticket prices are going to go down. No. Yeah. It's not going to affect your experience in a positive way in any fashion whatsoever. You, know, you should always want your team to try to at least put a competitive product on the field. And a lot of teams just don't look like they're doing that. And actually, somebody who's saying that is Evan Longoria, who's a third baseman on the Giants. He had a quote on, I believe it was an Instagram post. He said, it seems every day now someone is making up a new analytical tool to devalue players, especially free agents. As fans, why should 
value to uh, of for your team even be a consideration? It's not your money. It's money that players have worked their whole lives to get to that level and be the serving of. Bottom line, fans should want the best players and product for their on the field for their team. And as players, we need to stand strong for what we believe we are worth and continue to fight for the rights that we have fought for time and time again. I mean, that basically gets to the heart of it. Like, if you're Joe Blow and you enjoy watching baseball team X, you want you should want your team to be good. And I'm sorry, but that's generally speaking going to require them to spend money. The proposition is one that costs some rich dude who has oodles of cash lying around and clearly has, like, nothing that could be more productive for humanity to spend them on, Right. To, to spend that money on players, to spend that money on, uh, you know, they're not going to have to spend it on updating or renovating or getting a stadium because we've all, all decided that that's built. a public responsibility now. Yeah. <laughs> so you should want your yeah, owners to, to yeah, yeah you, should, you should want your owners to lay out this cash. And as somebody who's kind of a, a baseball mark, you know, I don't mm-hmm. really care about the statistics all that much. And I just kind of want to have fun watching ridiculous baseball gifts all day, it bothers me when it gets just nickel and dime to this point. Well, what Longoria said, too, I think can ring for, like, any kind of worker. Like, there's, it's not in every industry that I think this is happening in as of yet, but, like, imagine if your job was able to be, like, at least in your owner's terms, uh, just valued in a very specific way, and your production was valued in a specific way. There's lots of jobs that are like that, and this is a source of a lot of displacement, and they f- it's – I think Longoria seems – I don't want to like, – obviously, I don't know what he's thinking, but it's almost like he's insisting that there's, like, a conspiracy about the owners kind of taking control of the sabermetric industry. They're hiring a lot of these guys. As you saw, like in the movie Moneyball, this is when the yep. live team started hiring these kind of guys. And it's just another example of them using a new technology, a new way of gathering and analyzing data to for their own ends to enrich themselves. And I think this is that kind of trend playing out on a public, almost like theatrical scale. Right. I mean, you don't have to be Evan Longoria or a baseball player to know the experience of watching your boss get a lot richer while he pays you the same wage every year. And telling you you're not that valuable. Or even less. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And expressing either verbally if you're lucky or in other ways that – in other ways through pay or through hours or through other ways that – cutting benefits that you're just not actually that valuable. Mm -hmm. And like that's, that's happening to everyone everywhere. And that's the key of it all, right? That we've talked about on this show how sports are one of the most visible ways that you see class conflict and that you see labor conflict because we have access to this information. And unfortunately, that that has usually redounded against the players because we tend to think, well, you know, he's, you know, Bryce Harper is the kind of person who can say no to $300 million. Mm-hmm. You know, that must be nice. The, the, the phrase is, you're making millions to play a kid's it's game. It's also, yeah, that, it's hard to use it as a sympathy point. Right. Like, it's, you it's, can see the analogy, but. But the thing is, if they're willing to do that to people who have that much money, who could theoretically one day, you know, just turn around and use that money against them. Mm-hmm then there's nothing stopping them from doing that to us regular people who are making, you know, double digits an hour if we're lucky. Yeah. I, I, I think you can say baseball owners, you know, they're the same class of people as the ones, you know, pocketing their tax breaks. You know, They're the same. Like they own wages. these other mm-hmm. industries, right? Like a in Buffalo, like we have uh, the Pagulas, right, who are revered by every Sabres and Bills fans I know because they kept the Bills in Buffalo. Yeah. Um, and instead, what you're seeing is a complete kind of abandonment of who these owners actually are, how they made their money, and what their actual role is in the community and in the society. They don't see the fact that all the development going on is just a bunch of things that are employ- or just creating bars and food places that kind of employ low-wage workers mm-hmm. and all these things that because it's development, it kind of like on the surface looks good. It's treated by local media as such. But like that's like a local example of a kind of ownership structure that's like deemed as like this like savior complex to Western New York, but is in fact just as exploitative as anyone's bosses, and it does all the things in a city that we people turn around and criticize other billionaires for. And as somebody who spends a lot of time around the local ownership class for purely material reasons, I promise, the thing that I found is that it doesn't matter how fair you make the game. It doesn't matter how specific 
or vague you make the rules. It doesn't matter how much you try to prevent this sort of conduct on the part of the rich. They will find a way around what you just did because to them, part of the high, part of the whole thing, part of the deal is getting one over on you. And if you're a fan of a sports team and your your team owners are doing this and they're selling it to you like it's intelligent, honestly, you should probably feel a little bit betrayed. And imagine how how much the high must kick in for them because the results of oh, yeah. their deal or their lack of a deal ends up getting played out on the field. Mm-hmm. So if it's a guy they didn't sign or a guy they might have had a hand at screwing over and he doesn't succeed somewhere else, like it kind of like makes them feel justified. It's it's much more of a clear like high stakes gamble. So there's like that other element too, where it's all played out in a clear win or lose fashion on yeah, the field. Absolutely true. And we know now that that's how rich people see the world: just winners and losers. We'll be back after this break. Hey, hey guys. You know that feeling you have at work? That dead inside feeling? Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LP FM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Noah, joined still by Ryan. Hi. And Chris. Hey. And we've been talking for the past 40 minutes or so about the current... MLB offseason and how crap it is that owners are refusing to spend money on the players that actually do all the work of baseball. Yep. And we, towards the end of the last segment, we talked about how this isn't unique to baseball at all, but we understand if maybe you don't feel particularly sympathetic to the plight of, say, Bryce Harper or Manny Machado. Mm-hmm. So maybe you'll be moved by the plight of somebody like DJ Baxendale. He's a player on the Rochester Red Wings, which is a AAA minor league team. And I don't have his exact contract numbers in front of me, but I guarantee you that uh, he is currently not the kind of person who could turn down a 10-year, $300 million contract, Mm -hmm. and neither are probably about 95% of of minor league players. In fact, very often, they're getting paid pennies. Less than minimum wage. Well, especially if some legislatures have their way, right? But, like, what's the salary in AAA? It's like $11,000, $12,000 a year. It it is ridiculously It's, like, hard to look at. Like, whenever I've, like, had it seen, like, come up in the past in an article, I'm just, like, I almost, like, never finish it because I'm just, like, this is, like, painful. Like, I don't want to know that this is happening. Yeah, I don't want (laughs) to know that this is happening. And we know that, like, all of the leagues, you know, do this exploitation all one way or another, but... The minor league system in baseball is what is truly unique about it. And it's so – I mean, maybe there's some truth to like, oh, you have to do it because it's such a tough, precise game to learn. you got to spend, you know, a couple, two, three, four years doing it. And the fact is they're going to college now playing more than ever, so they've already got these three or four years of development out of the way. Yes, they use metal bats, but it's ultimately the talent level has been more similar than ever as to who's playing in college and to who's playing in the minor leagues. So – it starts to get, at least to me, get seen as like this tool to kind of prolong players' kind of prime contract days. Or at least you have the situation where they have the rookie contract. The younger they come up, let's say it comes up when he's 21, 22. Now that rookie contract's over when he's like 26, 27. And then you sign him, and then all of a sudden he's a free agent again, maybe when he's 31, 32, and then, which could be due for another sizable payday. So I see it as this production ultimate, with some exceptions, I see it as this reduction from like getting two big paydays if you're a good solid player to just one. And it's all of a sudden you have them building their entire careers around like this one big deal that now all of a sudden isn't happening. Machado and Harper are two guys who I think Machado is going to be 27 and both are yeah. going to be yeah. 27 by the end. Yeah, of Harper the I think season. was born like late 92 or 93 and they're at a much younger age of unrestricted free agency for a star player than what you normally see. So I think that's why with them is when you're starting to see this kind of pushback because it's rare when uh, anyone who's that good is a free agent that young anymore. Mike Trout, for example, uh, signed that extension earlier in his career. He won't be unrestricted until I think he's like 31. So the big payday contracts are, even though they might not be totally gone, they're becoming less and less common in a player's career. Mm -hmm. You talked about legislation. What was that about? Well, in at least two cases that I know of, one is the Arizona State Legislature and the other is 
I think right now it's just Minneapolis or St. Paul City Council. Teams have explicitly minor league teams, Mm -hmm. or in the case of the St. Paul Saints, that's an independent team. They have asked legislatures, local legislatures, to essentially repeal minimum wage laws for minor leagues. So as we said, minor league players are getting paid absolute poverty wages as it is, Mm -hmm. and these legislative efforts aim to make even that go Mm -hmm. away, which is... On on the behalf of Major League Baseball, at least in the Arizona case, which which has... $10 $10 billion in revenue. Right, and it wouldn't happen, too, if MLB didn't take it upon themselves to, like, talk to these municipalities, mm-hmm. right, or, like, have some kind of connection to one of them. Like, it, no sane person would just decide, you know, I'm going to do it my two-year city council term. I'm going to slash minimum or minor league players' minimum wage. Like, that's <laughs> well, what I want to do. You know, what we're seeing here is baseball is not a unique force in the economy. You know, it's if baseball is doing this, it's – the same from McDonald's or Burger King or, you know, the food service industry. You or know, Walmart. There are, or... B- baseball is far from the only industry built on not paying young workers. Well, I mean, the medical field especially. I mean, mm-hmm. I was in one of my early episodes in Punching Out. We were talking about that too. Noah, you and I had talked uh, – we talked about Rockstar Games and how they – That whole industry of video games is built on, you know, exploiting the passion of young workers so that they don't have to pay them as much. And do a gaming episode? Sort of. Nice. Do you listen to the show? (laughs) Not I only listen to the ones I'm on. All right. (sighs) Okay. Um, I think we can see the same thing in baseball as they're selling this dream of becoming Bryce Harper, of becoming a big major league superstar, and so they have hundreds of minor leaguers willing to make the absolute bare minimum for years out of our lives in order to maybe one day get that paycheck that, as we've talked about, might not come. Which Bryce never had to do, right? He was 19 when he came into the league. He was a guy who I was aware of since he was like 16 years old. Like he was one of those guys that people talked about as a high schooler, as a very, very young player, which in baseball is especially rare, uh, especially compared to basketball. We're used to see that back and high schoolers still got drafted. So even then, like, it's it's a faulty premise to sell to a guy because, like, he had such well, immediate talent. Talk about basketball, you know, the NCAA, you know, players mm-hmm. having to go through the NCAA yep. not getting paid for, you know, it, young years. And, and at least they can go overseas and, like, you know, mm-hmm. ball out, make some money if, but they, if really they get want. But if they get injured, you know, in that mm-hmm. year they have to wait before going to the NBA, it's, you and, know, that's huge sums of money that they've lost out on. Hockey's the closest parallel, I think, to the baseball minor mm-hmm. league system. But one, they again, they bring them up sooner. Mm-hmm. Two, they have the costs that are much more, probably the most restrictive salary cap system. They have mm-hmm. even less ways to go over the cap than NBA does. And, and they have alternative models where you can go play in the KHL in Russia if you want, mm-hmm. especially if you're um, – draft a player who's an international player you can just go play in your home country's league if you're russian or whoever the swedish elite league uh baseball players just don't have that option uh you can maybe play in japan which we'll see with some of these free agents especially maybe the bottom tier or like where eric Timms did that uh, who can go over there and just become like this legend for like a year i think it was eric Timms. they called him god in south korea <laughs> like that was his nickname okay it okay. was so it was great, and I, that would be a lot of fun, I'm sure, for a guy to do for one year. But it's not something they should have to do. Number one, they shouldn't have to do that. But number two, we had talked about how uh, the domestic market for baseball is getting wider in terms of talent. In terms of talent, right? It's, local it's, prospects and stuff. It's also getting richer. It, it's evolving something similar to uh, what the NBA did, where you know there's certain like high schools that are extremely renowned for their baseball programs and that pump out travel know, teams. Yeah, and travel teams and things like that. And so as a result, there's barriers to entry. And then if you're somebody who, you know, maybe you were a good prospect in high school, but you just don't maintain that level of play, you might get stuck in the minor league system for a few years. It leads to players or, you know, talent from younger backgrounds looking towards other sports. You know, Mm -hmm. we already talked about Kyler Murray, and Mm -hmm. his dad was actually a professional baseball player. Um, and he he was up until a month ago, maybe, when he sort of declared for the draft. And now, since then, he officially declared for the draft. It was believed that, like, Kyler Murray's going to play baseball. Like, it was just thought this is probably his last football game when he was in the SEC title game and the national title game, or Big 12, sorry. And 
that was just widely believed. And then it just comes out and it's like, oh, of course, football is the right option, right? Like it's instant yeah. stardom. <laughs> Wherever he goes, he's probably going to start. He's also, the most high profile guy making yeah. that decision. But, you know, think of how many players with less talent are yeah, the same way. Exactly. But I think that reflects something that you're seeing that kind of, uh, shall we say, downward mobility, okay? Mm-hmm. It's something that you're seeing, again, across the whole of the labor landscape that it used to be something that you could sort of say, okay, well, th- the way that this system works is that if if you reach a certain level of talent, then you get to make it to the majors and you get your big mm-hmm. payday and so on. But that's just not going to be the case. And players are going to be putting in more and more startup costs, basically, more and more entry costs mm-hmm. to even get to get stuck in the yeah. minor leagues. Well, Chris, you and I have you know had experience trying to get jobs in the media, mm-hmm. and that's Another thing where you're expected to have internships, unpaid internships. Unpaid. You, know, it's... you need a bachelor's degree of any kind, unless you kind of know somebody and you're someone who just happens to do like uh-huh. film stuff on the side. It... Like Other than that, like if you don't have that plug-in, and I'm sure it's like that in sports, but I mean sports is something where like, at the end of the day, you got to bring the goods. Like you Historically, gotta be able to the it's ball. been a meritocracy. Right. Sort of. And you're seeing, I think, like this latest generation of players, and maybe it's just my observation, mm-hmm. this latest generation of players, guys who are even younger than we are, they're born in the mid-90s and onwards, uh, who I think more and more you're seeing like, oh, this guy's uncle was in the league. Oh, his dad was. His older brother is in the league. You're seeing that more and more and more as the, syst- as the prospect systems become more, I think, centralized and institutionalized mm-hmm. and all these barriers get higher and higher where if someone has this entire lifetime of like top access to training and to mm-hmm. knowledge and skills, they can – Someone who can just they can activate whatever like genes they have from their parents. In, or their in a way, we could say that the athlete class reproduces itself. Yeah, and it's 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 been reproducing itself. Mm-hmm. Is it's, like, yeah, which again is the same thing that's happening everywhere else. Yeah. You know, the, the each as each generation has come up, they've been able to sort of place their agents throughout their you know labor systems basically to ensure that they can control the pool of labor coming in. Do we have other thoughts before we wrap up this episode? It's, well, it's a broad topic. Well, it's broad, and I know uh, you know we, we like things to be happy and good at the end of uh, anything we, we do try here, because right, we don't want anyone to cry or be upset about what's going on in baseball, even though it might be worth it. But Wait, are I think, you literally saying there's no crying in baseball? Yes. Nice. And I'm I'm not going to let that happen. And here's why, and it's because unions exist, and um, I think, yeah, maybe realistically, uh, like the CBA fight might cancel a part of the season hopefully not the playoffs this time i think the fact that that fight is even able to happen uh shows that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and i think who knows what will happen with that as far as uh, the rules about how players are signed or whether some kind of cap is implemented officially or not um but i think that this will end and also uh universal dh and a pitch clock are going to happen too so things will just be more fun overall so i don't think this is the national league getting put on blast a I, bunch of yeah guys. i think at worst at worst you'll see a temporary dip uh hopefully not to the likes of the late 80s and into the mid 90s but uh it'll get better and i think it's because of the fact that they have collective power ultimately yeah because a strike is really you know like that article we read on the ringer you know that's the one thing that can shake the league out of these doldrums. It's the mm-hmm. one tool players still have. Well, last time it was that and steroids. So maybe maybe we should bring back those two, honestly. We'll see. And also the last time it was Bill Clinton. But yes. I don't think we want to bring <laughs> okay. him back. Yep. He, he can stay out of it yeah, this he's time. He's done. Um, yeah, and, and I think you are correct to point out the, the thing about this is that those young players who are coming into the league sometimes on the – not – entirely on the backs of, but with the help of their family connections yeah. and so on, they're noticing that it's harder for them to make a career out of it than it probably was for previous generations, even if they're more trained in some ways, more conditioned, more so physically more capable. Right. So much like I think a lot of people are noticing, the the level of comfort, the level of benefit between these generations has taken such a uh, just just such a downside that I think it's encouraging some of these young players to actually say, no, like this can't continue. This has to end, which is why you're seeing, I, I think it was the Dodgers closer who actually went out and said, we need a strike. Just Todd Frazier was vocal. Uh, there was an interview he did from uh, Mets training camp um, a couple days ago. I know he said it was one of the more, at least what I've seen, one of the more vocal uh, player, active, active player pronouncements about what's going on. It, 
And Go baseball on. players, I mean, this is not a sport generally known for its radical politics. You know, if, right. if baseball players can recognize that, you know, collective power is the way out of things, you know, gives us hope, gives hope for us all. On As that, baseball goes, so hopefully goes the nation. Maybe. On that note, I'm Ryan. I'm Noah. I'm Chris. This is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.